Um, the, the, today's programme is about the 150th anniversary of the CDC. Uh, and the format for those of you here in the morning, you, of course you know, we, we took four key figures from that development. And I thought it would be very interesting, actually, to try to do something similar from a European perspective. And I was set to thinking, who would be the, th the three possible um, main figures within the European trade union movement? And I selected France, Italy, and Germany, because they were three of the six original signatories of the Treaty of Rome back in 1957. Um, and I thought, if, if we, I give, just give you a thumbnail sketch of uh, three trade union figures, each of whom would be a, a key a, a household name in their own country. And at first sight, they look very, very different in terms of their backgrounds. But actually, what's interesting, I think, from a European perspective is that if you look in detail at their careers, you see some very co a, a great deal of commonality that emerges from them. And it's those commonalities that help us to, when we put them together, to make the comparison, we can see actually how rather distinct Britain is, how rather different or uh, strange uh, labour development has been in the UK. And the, the first figure I will take is Hans Buckler. Uh, he may or may not be known to you, but Hans Buckler uh, was, um, he was born in 1875, so he's kind of roughly the water stream kind of figure, um, in the sense in terms of his, uh, his dates. Um, he started off life as a as in metal working industry. He fought in the First World War, was seriously injured, and immediately after the First World War became a, a city councillor in Cologne, where he lived, and then became a member of the Reichstag from 1928 to 1933. And at the same time, he was very much involved in the development of the what's now the IG Metall, the, the German metal working industry. Uh, so he was both a politician and a trade union official, and a very influential one. Um, in 1933, Hitler comes to power in, in January, and in <coughs> May, only a few months later, raids all the independent trade union offices and arrests trade unionists, as we know, uh, and the trade union movement in Germany is crushed, and, and either you complied with the Hitler regime, or you went onto ground, or you just kept your head down. In the case of Hans Böckler, he became a resistance uh, fighter uh, for German trade unions. He was arrested, um, spent time in prison, but eventually, he comes out the other side in 1945, um, and in 1949, becomes the first general secretary of the DGB, the Deutsche Gewerkschaftsbund, which is the kind of equivalent of the TUC in Germany. So, and from 1949 to his death, two years later in 1951, he's the general secretary of the, of the German trade union movement. And in 1951, only three weeks before he died, he signed the Montan uh, industry agreement with um, Conrad Adenauer, the Chancellor, which introduced worker directors onto the uh, German iron and steel industries. Um, and of course that model was then rolled out across other sectors of the German industry later than that. Um, so uh, a very well-rounded figure, politician, trade unionist, and actually one of the key figures in establishing the German trade union structures as they are today. Now. The second figure I'd like to look at is uh, Léon Jules, who's a, a French trade unionist, had virtually the same dates as Buckler, born in 1879, died in 1954. Um, he starts work in a, a match factory, uh, and he gets sacked at the age of 16 because he organises a strike against the use of phosphorus in a match factory, uh, and he becomes um, a, a member of the CGT, the, uh, the Confédération Générale du Travail, which was founded in 1895. 
And um, at the age of 30, he finds himself as General Secretary of the CGT, 1909. And he remains General Secretary from 1909 all the way up till 1947. That's 38 years. That's twice as long as Citrine was uh, General Secretary of the TUC. It's an, an amazing achievement, actually. Now, the CGT at this point was, um, um, uh, it, well, Jouard, I should say, was a socialist. He was very anti-communist. Um, and when the, 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 uh, the communists tried to, after the First World War to take control of the CGT, they were expelled in 1921, and then they formed their own trade union up until 1936. During this time, CGT was a socialist trade union confederation, and Jouot is responsible for, the, for signing the Matignon Agreement in 1936 with the socialist government of Leon Blum, which introduces an eight-hour working week, paid holidays, a variety of other benefits to trade unions, uh, and, and to workers generally. Um, and then during the war, he's imprisoned, he's sent to Buchenwald, he survives Buchenwald, comes out to the other side in 1945, he's still the general secretary of CGT, even though CGT has been suppressed by the Nazis. Um, and then um, the same thing happens again, as happened in 1920, the, the communists try to take over again, and this time they succeed, uh, because the communist stars, of course, waxed during the Second World War, they were very... Uh, important in the resistance, and uh, General de Gaulle is trying very much to kind of uh, appease them because he's very worried about the rise of communism in France. Um, and uh, Jouot actually um, leaves the CGT, the, 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 the part of the, the union that he had led for all these years, and he founds the CGT FO, the Force Ouvrière, which again still exists to this day as a kind of business union. It's, it's, a, it's a certainly non communist union that's designed to really help workers to, uh, to, to, to uh, collectively bargain, improve conditions at work. So really he's been the key figure in two trade unions throughout that time. Um, and the, the third union figure I would mention is um, Giuseppe Di Vittorio, an Italian, um, born around the same time, 1892, he dies in 1957, they all got roughly the same lifespans. Um, he was a, from a peasant stock, he was from the Mezzo Giorno in southern Italy. Uh, he um, um, actually, unlike Jules, is a communist. Uh, goes through the First World War, joins the Communist Party in 1921 when it's formed, and is, then becomes a, 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 a deputy in the Italian parliament until Mussolini takes over. He's then imprisoned, he escapes, goes to France, rejoins the CGL, of which he's a member in the 1930s, is imprisoned again by Mussolini during the Second World War, comes out through the other end, and reforms the CGL, which he becomes General Secretary in 1945. At this point, CGL is, is, is not a communist union, actually it embraces all political parties. But again, as in France, it's taken over by the communists in 1948. Uh, but this time, of course, uh, Di Vittorio is actually communist, and he remains the General Secretary up until his own death in 1957. Now, th the point about these figures is on one side, they, they look fairly different from different backgrounds, from different countries, but actually they have quite a lot in common, which is they're all politically involved, they're all uh, become general secretaries of major trade unions which are still in existence today, despite the change in the political landscape of their own countries, but above all, um, they, the, 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 the unions that they founded or helped to found after the Second World War are the ones we have still. In other words, they're their contribution to their own country's union movements has been an enduring one, is still there with us today. And I think I, I, if we now compare them 
with the UK, particularly in the relation to what we've talked about earlier today, there are a number of key points that I think I will just finish off fairly quickly by drawing out some key contrasts between their experiences from France, Italy and Germany and our own in the UK. Um, and the first one is simply the fact that the TUC, of course, was founded in 1868, 30 years or longer before the other trade union movements in, 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 in continental Europe. Britain was the workshop of the world, it was the first country to industrialise, and therefore its union movement was extremely fragmented. I think there were about a thousand, over a thousand unions in existence in the 1900s, I mean something like that. Um, in Germany there were only ever 50 unions maximum, now there's only eight unions in, in Germany. Uh, because they're industrial unions, which is the other point, which is the structure of the trade unions. I think this helps to exemplify. One thing you'll notice about the three figures I mentioned from continental Europe is, is the splits in the union movement. And it's something that John Monks said earlier on about Belgium. Uh, there are splits both politically, communist, anarcho-syndicalist, socialist, there's Christian, democrat, secular. All these different splits at one time or another have reformed in one form or another. The TUC is quite different from that. The TUC has been a secular movement right from the very start, defending the interests of workers. It's never had splits between socialists and communists, Christians, non-Christians, all this sort of thing. It's been remarkably solid in that sense, which, which contrasted very, very dramatically with that in, in Europe. Um, and also, the other contrast, I think, with Europe is that, um, particularly in relation to Germany, is the structure of the trade unions, that uh, in Germany you have industrial unions, whereas in this country we've had craft unions, general unions, we've had obviously industrial unions as well, um, and uh, generally the whole, the whole caboodle of, of union organisation we've found in this country. In, in, in Germany and in other countries, even though there are these splits between socialist and communist and the rest of it, nevertheless the structure has been industry. So it means that if you are a German worker in, for example, an engineering company, whether you are actually working as a lathe operator or as a van driver or as a receptionist, you are still the member of the same union. That would not happen in this country. You'd be members of different unions depending on your occupation. And that's given the German unions a great strength. It's also created a weakness nowadays because another point that we were saying earlier on in relation to John was that, of course, with the rise of new uh, industries like, um, well, McDonald's, fast food, package delivery, these sectors were not envisaged in the t when the German uh, Union movement was, was developing. These new sectors have kind of fallen outside the, the, the remit of the German unions, and therefore workers in those, unions are, in those industries are much more exposed. And I think in Britain it's easier possibly to organise them because of the, the sheer diversity of our own union movement. And then the last point I'd make, as I come to an end, hopefully in more time, time. <laughs> is, is the role of law. And I think this is another really important point. Um, Léon Joux uh, signed the Matignon Agreement in 1936. Now in France, uh, the, the uh, progress of the union movement has been through the law. In 1936 and in 1945, when General de Gaulle conceded works councils because he was frightened of communism. In 1968, when he conceded, General de Gaulle, when he's now President of the, uh, of the Fifth Republic, concedes um, union delegates within factories. And then, of course, later on, under Mitterrand, you have all the Aru laws that come through, which extend collective bargaining, all this sort of thing. The role of the law in, in uh, certainly France, and Italy, or France anyway, is, is really very distinctive from the way it is in Britain. And also, when we looked at uh, Hans Buckler, he signs the Mutan Agreement, um, again with Konrad Adenauer, for the development of worker directors across German industry. And the role of the law is something that really strikes you, I think, in relation to, um, to, to these, um, uh, these countries. And, and in particular, when we were talking earlier on about collective bargaining, 
and, and the, the, the constriction or restriction of collective bargaining in many European countries. Don't forget that the three countries I mentioned all have laws that extend collective mm -hmm. bargaining beyond the signatories. If you, if you are working in a particular sector in, say, engineering, and you're not a member of the union, or indeed if your employer is not a member of the Employers Association who signed the agreement, that agreement becomes binding across the entire sector, irrespective of whether or not you're a member of the mm -hmm. union. And that really is, again, a very important distinction between Britain and the other countries. Mm -hmm. So in other countries, even though you have a, a, a restriction or a, a gradual decline of union coverage, collective bargaining coverage, apparently, actually, uh, in France, for example, the union membership is now something like 8 or 7%. Mm. It's very, very low indeed. And yet the unions retain their strength mm. because they're all in, in the legal system, and which means that comparing French and British unions really becomes actually quite problematic. We, we can't, it's not the kind of like for like. There's no real functional equivalence between them. You have to really look at the different roles that unions play in each of these different countries. So I think really, uh, you know, I, I, as I've come to the, my final sentence, um, you know, I think even a brief look at three key figures from these countries actually shows how rather similar the unions in Europe have developed as a result particularly of, of, of the experience of fascism and the experience of the war and the way you come out of that at the other end in relation to Britain, which has escaped those particular... Obviously, we had the war, but not in the same way. None of our union leaders were locked up by Nazis. Um, we didn't come out the other end um, needing to completely reconstruct yeah. the union movement. I mean, what's very nice about the TUC is the continuity. Mm. It's been there since 1868 with all the problems we've had, the general strike, the winter of discontent, all these things we know about. Yet, nevertheless, the institutions remain there as a continuum, which has been very different from that of other European countries. Yeah, absolutely. And one sort of um, tiny, weeny addition to that is, mm. interestingly, Len Murray was sent across to Germany to help them re-establish a trade union movement, oh, right. got it down to sort of eight yes. industrial, came yeah. back here and looked at the TUC and said, oh, if only. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway.